This is the MG Car Club Podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this podcast, I continue my chat with Graham Robson detailing the history of the Abingdon Works Competition Department. Adam has found an amazing secret document from the MG factory in the Kimber House archives and we explain how 20 minutes of your time could safeguard the future of the British classic car community. The MG Car Club Podcast. Welcome to another MG Car Club podcast. Hope you're well and enjoying your summer. Adam's here, back in Kimber House once again. How is Kimber House, Adam? It's looking good, mate. It's um, it's bright and sunny here at the moment, which is uh, which is a nice change. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's all good. And you've been having a bit of a tidy up in the Kimber House archives over the last few days, and you've pulled out an amazing document, which we're going to talk about in this episode at a little bit of length. And, and it's marked across the front in strict confidence. And this is an exclusive secretive paper from uh, MG, the manufacturer that we have uncovered in the Kimber House archives that we're going to share with you and just pick out some of the bits that we really like. That's going to come up in a very uh, short amount of time on the podcast. But first, we must talk about what MG are currently doing. And uh, there was a big announcement, Adam, over the MG5, wasn't there, this week? Yes, so um, MG Motor have confirmed that the MG5 EV will be coming to the market here in the UK later this year. So um, we knew it was coming for a little while, but obviously the coronavirus impacted on what MG's plans were for this year. We've seen the ZS facelift has come a little bit later, um, but now they've confirmed that they will be bringing the what they're calling the MG5 EV to the UK. Uh, as I said, it's a fully electric vehicle with a range of something like 214 miles. Um, so that'd be really interesting. That's probably MG's first unique offering in the UK market. Well, also on the newsletter that we put out uh, last weekend, actually, from the MG Car Club, I covered the story of some new dealerships, actually, that MG are opening in Iraq, of all places. And MG in the Middle East are really making great strides to expand their footprint in that market. Very, very interesting to see how they're rolling that out. And they're in partnership with a dealer network in Iraq now. But it is all playing into this this mission to be selling a million cars globally by the time MG turns 100 years old, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always interesting to see MG move into a new market. I was lucky enough to go to Dubai back in 2015 when they launched the brand in that first Middle Eastern market. Um, and since then, they've gone on to sell cars in Saudi Arabia, uh, in Iran, and now obviously in Iraq. So, um, yeah, they've got to get those units out there in, in customers' hands. And with the sort of dual branding they've got with some of the other products they offer in other countries, they're able to offer, you know, big SUVs that that kind of market wants. And as we've said time and time again here on the podcast, the first duty for any car manufacturer is to produce cars that people want to buy. So, yeah, there's a lot of SUVs in, in other markets, but that's what those guys want. So it's interesting to see them growing. Absolutely. And uh, people are buying MGs. I, I'm starting to play a little game now. Um, it's a game you should play as well, listener, uh, when you're out and about on the road, especially on a long journey. I am now playing Spot the Modern MG. And it's amazing how many you do see on the road. I had a trip of about an hour today to a meeting and i saw no less than 14 modern mgs on the road in that hour's journey 14 
and they were rural roads as well it's not like i was bombing down the m25 they are becoming more visible on the roads aren't they they are they really are but you, you say about spotting modern mgs i have to tell you a, a quick story if you'll allow me to digress so sarah and i were outside our house the other day um i was getting ready to to come into kimber house and a brand new hs uh, came down our road and me being me i was surprised and for some reason i decided the most appropriate thing for me to do was to wave <laughs> at this car as it approached me um, and the lady who was driving the car very kindly pulled up, dropped a window and said, yes, do I know you? And I said, yeah, oh, no, I don't know you. I was just um, just pleased to see a, a new MG on the road. And she sort of looked at me a bit puzzled and went, oh, right. And just drove off. <laughs> <laughs> she probably got home and went, you'll never guess this weird man I met out on the street. Well, Sarah looked at me and said, why did you do that? I was like, well, I don't know. It was an MG. I got excited. It's a bit like when you wave at a classic MG, forgetting that you're in your modern daily car if that's not an MG. Like, when I'm driving my Land Rover Discovery, I will, like, wave at classic cars, forgetting that I'm not in mine. <laughs> and yeah, they sort of look yeah. at you weirdly like, why are you waving? <laughs> so if you ever see someone in a modern car waving at you and you're driving your MGB, MGA or whatever, just wave back because that's what it is. They are also a classic car owner who's forgotten what car they're driving that day. Just wave back. <laughs> and it could be us. It could be. Yeah, it's probably me. waving at you could be us. Exactly. It's us. Classic cars on the road and indeed historic vehicles of all shapes and sizes being on the road is what we all need to campaign to ensure uh, that stays basically uh, that we make sure that we have historic vehicles in our midst and visible on the road and that's exactly what of course the fbhvc do for us the mg car club being one of the biggest members of the federation group of clubs they represent over 540 clubs in the uk and are also the uk representatives of fever who are the international body for historic vehicles and it is that time again when they launch their five yearly survey into the the National Historic Vehicle Community in the UK. Now, why is this survey important? It's important because, let me read you a quote. This was a quote from the Yorkshire Post recently, uh, quoting our very own Secretary of State for Transport, Grant Shapps. And Grant Shapps said in the Yorkshire Post, I'm sorry, internal combustion engine fans, I think its days are overall likely to be numbered. Also, a local authority in Wallingford in Oxfordshire, not far from where we are with Kimber House in Abingdon, most recently debated a motion which was fortunately defeated to cancel and indeed ban its historic vehicle rally and parade in the town of Wallingford. These are very real threats that we are all facing now in the historic vehicle community. We need to ensure that we are arguing at the highest levels for our freedoms to use the road with our historic vehicles. And in order for the FBHVC to do that on our behalf, to argue very, very strongly that we need to be left alone to use our British transport heritage on the roads of the UK, is data. They need to be able to prove to politicians who have probably never even heard of a classic car, let alone seen one, that this movement is big and that we contribute a large amount of money to the, the country. 6.6 uh, .6 billion was what was uncovered in the last survey five years ago. And basically, it needs to prove 
to those in power that this is a movement worth saving. It needs to prove that there are certain elements of our movement that are essential to preserving our heritage, our culture, our society. And the only way we can argue against these laws and the legislation that might curtail our abilities to use our MGs is by proving through data and demonstrating to them that, that this, this community exists and is important. So all it takes is 20 minutes of your time your time to sit at a computer and fill in a questionnaire about how you use your classic car. And it can be any MG, uh, as long as it's classed as a historic vehicle. And in particular, we want to hear from younger members, and younger members often means those under 50 uh, these days, and also those who are driving MGs that have recently become historic. So we're talking to you guys with Montegos and Metros and uh, the late MGBs. This is the data that we need to give the FBHVC to make sure that they've got all the tools that they need to argue at the highest levels on our behalf. You can find the links to it on the MG Car Club website in our news section or indeed within the podcast description part of the podcast page at mgpodcast.uk and all it takes is 20 minutes of your time to ensure that your hobby, your pastime, your way of life is protected into the future. It's very important, Adam, isn't it? You know, this is this is vital information that we all need, um, and it's not going to take you any more than, than you know fifteen twenty minutes to get it done. Um, and you know, you are making a difference. You are contributing um, to to all of us to to help all of us make our voices heard and help the lawmakers understand just how important um, you know the, this this community that we are all part of is you know you're looking you, at the moment we we've all been suffering with the virus we've been suffering with a lot of people with with losing jobs and losing loved ones but the classic car industry is responsible for for something like nearly 40,000 jobs in the UK you know it's a huge huge part of what we do as a country let's talk about this amazing document that you dragged out of the Kimber House archives that is marked strictly confidential Explain firstly what it is that you've got here. So what you need to imagine with the Car Club Archive is, you know, the uh, the big warehouse in Indiana Jones, where they put the Ark of the Covenant and all the, all the special stuff that they have top men looking at, top men. Um, <laughs> our archive here at Kimber House is a bit like that, except uh, we haven't got anything Egyptian in there. <laughs> well, not ancient, not ancient Egyptian. We've got a lovely badge from the MG Car Club of Egypt. Um, Do you wear gloves to handle everything? Some of the stuff in there, yes. Like papyrus paper um, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so we're very lucky here that we've got Pete Neal, our archivist. Pete worked in the factory. Uh, Pete worked in the drawing office. Um, and what Pete doesn't know about MG uh, isn't worth knowing. Pete's a and legend. He's a lovely guy. And if any of you have had the chance to meet Pete, uh, if any of you have ever requested a chassis file from Kimber House, uh, Pete has gone and, and found that file for you because we've got production records for the cars up to the 50s. Pete at the moment is um, is shielding at home, so isn't with us at the moment. So um, we hope that things improve soon so we can get Pete back. But what I've found this week is actually a fairly recent donation to the club. And it was given to us by a gentleman called Mike Gould, who used to work for... 
Rover Group. He's written a really good book called uh, Rover Group, uh, which covers the history of the company from 1986 all the way up to 2000. Um, and through his connections through the uh, through the business, uh, Mike has given us the marketing platform for PR3, or as you and I know it, the MGF. Wow. It's brilliant. And it's so thick as well. There's lots of stuff in here. This was a document that was produced probably, I don't know, what are we guessing at, 26, 27 years ago? So this is issue one from October 1994. So that puts it about six, seven, eight months before uh, Geneva, when MGF was actually shown to the press for the first time. That in itself is interesting, because that's not a lot of lead time for developing your marketing strategy for a brand new model, is it? No, well, the thing is, Rover Group did everything for MGF on such a tiny shoestring budget. Um, So they obviously weren't given the leeway to have more time, because the more time you spend on something, the more money you can spend on something. So I think everything was deliberately kept very, very tight and very, very lean with the whole um, PR3 programme. Well, it's a huge document and basically outlines the marketing strategy, the rollout strategy, basically everything that the team at MG needed to know behind launching the MGF and getting it to market. It's a thick document. It's 84 pages long. Um, But Adam and I have basically skimmed through it. And and I guess what we could do here is really just pick out the bits that stood out uh, to one another as we went through it. And the first thing that stood out to me is the discussion about how they were going to organise the PR strategy for this. And I start here because there is actually later on, when I pick out some other bits, a load of contradictions here. Um, it's quite interesting. And this is just a little paragraph out of where their, their, their PR strategy is being defined effectively. And it's on page two of the document. It says, MG branding is perhaps a mixed blessing read on while on the one hand it will give the car awareness and many pr opportunities the downside is that no car no matter how good can possibly live up to the current expectations it's really interesting phrase it's therefore important that all communication is forward rather than backward looking i.e. no trips down memory lane, and that it concentrates on PR3, the product, rather than the MG mark. Now, keep that bit in your minds, because in a moment, I'm going to contradict that completely. But interesting, I get reading between the lines, and I suppose through the glasses of looking back in time from knowing what we know today, there's a bit of a reference to the competition that they were up against there with the Mazda MX-5, I think. Yeah, well, MX-5 had come sort of out of nowhere and had blown, you know, the the sports car market wide open again because, you know, you've got to remember that in 1970, I think British Leyland were the biggest producer of sports cars in the world. And by 1980, they totally left the market. Um, you know, and uh, there were a lot of people in and around Rover Group and Longbridge and Canley and Cowley who looked at each other when they saw the MX-5 and thought, do you know what, we've missed a trick there. That was our market. We we gave it away. Um, and it's interesting that um, they talk about sort of, you know, no matter how good the car is, it will never meet expectation. I think the problem was there was so much pent up demand 
for an MG sports car, the biggest worry was that they were going to release this car. And even if it was the best car in the world, people would still look at it. If they compared it to an MGB or an MG Midget or an MGA, people would look at it and say, this isn't as good as those cars. Um, of course, you know, in its, own, in its own merits, the MGF is every bit as good as the MGB. Um, but it's interesting that they were sort of already considering the, the MG brand to be a bit of a, a double-edged sword. Well, they could never bring to the market with the MGF all of the memories and the rose-tinted glasses elements of the MGB, could they? There were loads of people that had fond lovely memories of mgbs and the new car was never going to have memories that's part of their problem as well hence the must be forward looking uh, uh, um, statement there as well but i say that it was full of um, contradictions i go on to page six here and i pick out this little paragraph uh, which says pr3 the mgf will fulfill the promise inherent at the time of the mgr v8 launch of reintroducing the MG name. Remember they said don't talk about the MG name, we're talking about the product, so that's gone out the window now. The MG name as a mark in its own right and simultaneously lay to rest, and this is important, the saloon car badge engineering exercises of the 1980s. Now this is 1994. This is only six years before the Zeds arrived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, RV8 was such an overstatement of what um, a lot of people, if you distilled MG down into its purest sort of elements, you would think, well, it's a lightweight, affordable um, sports car. You know, RV8 was, was not affordable. Um, it certainly wasn't lightweight. Um, and it was it was a rare car. You know, they were rare when they were new because they were built in such limited numbers. They're even rarer now. And don't get me wrong, I think the RV8 is a fantastic car, but um, they were thinking along the lines of where they were going to go with MG as a sports car brand, not knowing, of course, that in just a few short years, BMW would dispose of the company and take the bits that they wanted, um, which left sort of Rover Group or MG Rover as it became, sort of scrabbling around for more product to bring to market. And the easiest way which, to bring to broaden your portfolio is to, is to badge engineer stuff. So... Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, let's look at the uh, the pillars that they were building the brand of the MGF around. This was the the mark values. Desire was the first one, uh, and it. Re I, I love the fact that they use this phrase. It relates to the added sex appeal of driving a new MG. <laughs> you can tell this is the nineties, can't you? <laughs> it's pose value and the wanting to own factor. Stand by. More contradictions on the way, everyone. The second value is exhilaration, uh, which comes apparently from the car's fast performance and superior handling, which is great, uh, providing enjoyment, freedom, and release for the owner. They definitely had a marketing agency in to do this. You can tell. Uh, <laughs> distinctive. <laughs> I love this one. Distinctive is the third value. It recognises the car's prestigious and exclusive nature contradictions come in uh, a car for individuals who want to be different from the crowd and i say contradictions because the fifth element the final one was value recognizes affordability in terms of purchase price running costs and a good resale value and longevity hang on a minute i thought you told me it was exclusive uh, but the fourth value 
the fourth value was British. Now, remember what we were saying about don't go down the trips down memory lane in this same document, not two pages before where we are now. The fourth value was British. This encompasses authenticity and originality. It acknowledges Rover's sports car expertise. <sighs> I'll just leave that one to sink in <laughs> built on heritage or to put it another way we did it first and we do it best so um already contradicting their own advice of uh, not going down memory lane there uh, although memory lane slightly warped by rover's sports car expertise i'm just looking through the history books to find the rover sports car that uh, changed them into a sports car expert but can't find it at the minute i'm sure i will the only one that really springs to mind is the the turbine car that raced at Le Mans, of course, uh, developed by BRM. Um, yeah, yeah. And I suppose the BRM Rovers, but uh, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Um, and there's more, isn't there, Adam? I mean, you've picked out other stuff that's uh, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It says, um, one of the objectives of PR3 is to make it the world's most enjoyable car to drive, which they then uh, abbreviate to WMEC, hopefully, um, which has become a process based on the press reports of competitive products over the past few years. Uh, and they go on to say it. Uh, it, it uh, they put it up against um, competitors from Porsche and TVR, um, with the idea that being the with PR three being that much more affordable, um, it should offer those same sort of thrills that you would get from a Porsche and a TVR, but with a with a price tag more common to to MG. Um, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff in here. It's it's an amazing document. It really is. I found something on page 57, which reinforces what Ian Pogson was telling us about his time working for MG really starkly, actually, and really powerfully. You're led to believe that the British workforce, all they ever did was strike, all they ever did was do what they had to do and go home, and they had no interest or enthusiasm in the vehicles they were making. That was the story of the British manufacturing workforce that was always portrayed in the media every time i look into more detail about a particular model launch or a particular story from behind the scenes you find that ever more evidence that that was wrong and here's some more for you that i found bearing in mind this is 1994 okay um the memories of bl and bmc are fading but are still there and this part of the document goes on to explain how they're building the team to roll out the MGF, how they are uh, recruiting people to the team, and the type of people that they're looking for. And the very last paragraph in the the brief, if you like, for the for for who the team are is is this: the team has brought enthusiasm for sports cars in general and MGs in particular. In their spare time, members of the team enjoy classic and sports cars ranging from MGs and Triumphs through to racing metros. They are united by a common desire to see MG become the definitive sports car again. No one individual can take credit for the team's success. Basically what it's saying is every single person that was working on MGF was an MG car club member. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> that's the profile of the type of person, and that is that. That's got to be the first time ever in an MG document through the factory launching a new model that they mentioned triumphs. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll tell you another thing that's really interesting in this document as well. If you look at the, the sales forecast, um, they talk about um, sort of initial numbers. Uh, the first year they were predicting, um, obviously because it was going to launch fairly late in 95, um, they were predicting something like 5,500 cars uh, and then the following year up to about 15,000 um, 15, cars. But interestingly, they talk about the plans post-launch. Um, and there's a section in here because none of the sales figures mention any plans to take the car to the US. Now, they do talk about Japan. They talk about other overseas markets. They talk a little bit about Australia. Um, but there's a section that says May 1998, other actions. In addition to the above actions, further enhancements will depend on the development of our sports car strategy in conjunction with BMW. Obviously, at this time, Rover Group was part of BMW. At this stage, a fixed head coupe version of PR3 is not being ruled out. This will provide a significant midlife product improvement, which could be achieved at a comparatively low cost. So obviously we got that TF coupe concept car that came out under MG Rover's time. But it shows that even back then when it was it was a you know a baby car, wasn't even named at this point, or they weren't willing to, to admit to the name in this document, because they do reference that in this document. Um, they were thinking of, you know, a success to the mg bgt all the way back then fantastic well we could go through this document all night to be quite honest with you but at some point we must hand it back to you the listener to access and to have a look at and if you want to look at any of these documents it's very very easy all you have to do is join the mg car club and come and visit the archives at kimber house very very easy to join and you can do it online uh, via the podcast page even mgpodcast.uk click the join now button in the top right hand corner of the page and you can become a member of the mg car club and get access to all these resources all these amazing archives all these phenomenal insights into the cars that we love and how they were built mgcc.co.uk come and join the mg car club get access to all this material and uh, enjoy it like adam and i have done now though we're going to go back even further into time to look at another aspect of mg history as we return to my conversation with Graham Robson, as we detail the history of the Abingdon Works Department. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centers and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club Podcast. Well, we pick up my conversation with Graham Robson at the point where the Abingdon Works Department and Special Tuning are now selling parts to the general public. Well, it's amazing the number of models in the family that they made special tuning parts for, including eventually the Allegro and the Morris Marina. Amazing. Um, I wasn't going to mention those. <laughs> uh, they did, of course, do the tuning pack for the MG Midget. And if you look through the price list, as I have done from the MG Car Club archives, you'll find that it costs well over £3,000 by today's money. Question is, Graham, did it really make much difference? Well, the answer is it could. I mean, you could. That was the, the clever, the clever bit about special tuning. I think I'm right in saying that Basil Wales again was still with us. Basil Wales was the first man really to uh, 
make this a professional department, they were very clever in that you could either buy the flag and you could buy the, the seat belts or you could buy the full engine tune and so on. You could make your midget as quick as you wanted if you had a nice deep pocket. Incidentally, the racing midgets were prepared either by a man called Dick Jacobs, who was a dealer in East London, or they were, they were reed badged as Austin Healy's and prepared for racing by Austin Healy in Warwick. But an MG midget road car of the 60s would have, shall we say, 60 horsepower. But by the time all the uh, development work had been done and all the bits and pieces had been fitted, they had 100 to 105 horsepower. Now, that was a huge difference. It doesn't sound many in numbers, but that made a huge difference to the performance. Therefore, therefore, the... Uh, the midgets and the things that raced at Le Mans, the Targa Florio and Sebring, they were a lot quicker than the standard car. It was an early example of what is commonplace now, taking technology developed on the race circuit and applying it to road cars. And Autocar said of that midget package that you described there, uh, the test car proved very convincingly that the midget takes well even to extreme tuning of this kind. Uh, this conversion greatly enhanced the sporting character of the car without any serious snags arising. Even the fuel consumption stayed within very reasonable bounds. On the open road, the performance was nothing short of exhilarating, although again, the noise level was high enough to become wearing after an hour or so of really hard driving that will be the performance exhaust system then <laughs> it, it could be done it was done and a lot of people made real hot little race cars out of their midges and of course let's never forget that the mgb was was the cornerstone of an awful lot of stuff that mg enthusiasts did particularly in the 60s they could go rallying and they did tick. They could go racing. They could they could go racing themselves in British events. Tick. And there were people in the what I call the, the tune-up market in this country, who specialised in nothing else. And they always had a roaring trade. And when you think, and I'm sorry to say this, but I'm going to duck behind my my telephone when I said it, the engines were not very. How can we put it? The engines were not very promising designs to start with. And the miracle was that it was, again, it was Eddie Mayer usually. Eddie Mayer and Downton in particular. They turned ordinary engines into very good racing engines indeed. And it was the Mini that really benefited the most from those upgrades, wasn't it? It took the world by storm. The fact that the Minis were done at the, in the MG competition department in Abingdon is, is, is pure happenstance. But let me make it very clear. The same team of mechanics, the same team of managers... Uh, and the same teams of drivers drove the minis and the MGs of the period. And, and people like uh, Pat Moss and, and Paddy Hopkirk used to tell me at the time when they, were, when they were still not quite world famous, they would be called by somebody like Stuart Turner who said, uh, sales department have asked us if we'd enter a car for the Polish rally or something. Are you free the weekend of August something? And that was how informal the programs at Abingdon were because the the management and the team and the enthusiasts, they could turn their hands to most things that had this, as you said, the rosette on the front of it. And it worked. Great success through the 1960s. Rallies and races were being won. And of course, those tuning packs now available on the market. But 1970 was a very troubled year, wasn't it? Um, competition stopped to restart again later in 1974 under BL special tuning. Where did it all go wrong? Well, I'm sorry, but I've got to mention the magic, awful four-letter word, Ford. 
because in the 60s when BMC were getting bigger and better and stronger and more successful and don't forget that with the minis built by MG people at Abingdon the minis on the Monte Carlo rally three or four times they raced at Le Mans they, they did all sorts of things um, they were facing increasing competition from in particular in this country from Ford Motor Company who started with one or two very 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 good engines they they cleverly formed links with Cosworth, and before long, Ford decided to throw money at the, at the sport. They started producing special cars, like the Ford Escort Twin Cam and, and things like it. Now, BMC had never done that. They had never built special, what we call homologation specials. Once Ford had started doing that, they could produce incredibly fast motor cars that were never not profitable to them, but they were very profitable to them in terms of marketing, BMC or British Leyland, Peter Browning's people, found it more and more difficult. The Mini was way up to its peak. It was, you know, the rally car was 110, 115 horsepower, but it was still a little front-wheel drive car. The MGB, lovely car, but it was, the, en the engine had reached the limits of its tuning. 135, 140 horsepower was all you got from an MGB. It was having to face up to these new Fords, which were very special and very expensive. British Leyland had been founded by then, and although in many ways it's always been my opinion that Donald Stokes was, was not incompetent to run British Leyland, but Donald Stokes was unlucky. If he was going to do competitions, he wanted to win. He didn't just want to turn up, he wanted to win. And the problem was that by 1970, the MG-inspired cars weren't winning as often as they had. The example is the 1970 World Cup rally when, <clears throat> I'm sorry to say, it was uh, Abingdon built them, but Abingdon built some triumphs, some big triumphs, which finished second and fourth in the magnificent World Cup rally to Mexico. And they were very happy about that. But when they got back, it was made very clear to them by Donald Stokes' office that they had failed. And why had they failed? How discouraging was this? And it wasn't long before the autumn of 1970 that... Uh, British Leyland, not MG, not the, not the BMC people who were, but British Leyland top management have said, right, uh, we're going to withdraw from motorsport. We don't see why we should spend £1,000 every year and not win all the time, which is where, as you said, 1970 was a traumatic year. I think it's true to say that the competition manager, Peter Browning, resigned a week before he was going to be fired anyway, and uh, it was all very unhappy particularly for the people at the MG factory at Abingdon for the next several years. To me, that story kind of sums up the difference in approaches between the British motor industry that almost acted like a petulant child when it didn't get its own way in motorsport. And let's be honest, in motorsport, you rarely get your own way. Things like that happen. And you compare that to the sort of the German approach to things. When Porsche first turned up at Le Mans, they really, really struggled, but they kept coming back and redeveloping and, and fighting the thing until they were the most successful brand in the world ever in endurance racing therein lies the total difference between the two approaches and probably what could be applied to the rest of the British motor industry at the time as well. And almost related to this, and I remember distinctly going to uh, chat shows at dealerships at about this time when Stuart Turner had, had, had let's be honest, had changed, changed hats from BMC to <clears throat> Ford Motor Company. But nevertheless, people in the audience, young, young enthusiasts who might have 
uh, MGs or like have Mini Coopers and things, used to stand up to him at the question time and say, I want to get on in motorsport, give me a tip or two. And he always used to say with a cynical smile on his face, learn Japanese. And this more or less proves what you were saying, that, that it was the Japanese and it was the Germans who were throwing money at the sport, who were throwing money at special cars, and it was that in particular that made it difficult for MG to shine anymore because they weren't allowed to develop the cars that they could have produced. Again, let me give you the example. The last of the MGC Sebring cars, uh, as, as I think most people out there know, they were only, there were going to be six, and as I remember, two or only three of them were built. Very special MGCs, all aluminium engines, a lot more power than ever before, um, lightweight bodies and all that. Development had only just started on those, and yet they were ruthlessly killed off because they weren't mass-produced, they weren't necessarily going to sell in big numbers, and it wasn't guaranteed that they were going to win. So it was the top-levels approach to selling motor cars, even if it were only vans or whatever, that really killed off the use of sporting cars in motorsport, which some of the top people at British Leyland didn't seem to understand. The people who could always understand were at Abingdon, and this was everyone from the competitions managers down through the mechanics in the, in the motor support department to the people who still built cars in huge numbers, literally just a, across the yard uh, in Abingdon. They all understood about motorsport. They all understood about sporting reputations. And yet um, they somehow couldn't get their message across. Now, I must also break in and tell you the lovely story about British Leyland, who really didn't know or care too much about Abingdon at the time. This is a non-motorsport story. Now, Abingdon at the time was thriving and selling cars like mad in North America. One of the British Leyland marketing whiz kids who came from outside MG came down for a uh, study of what Abingdon was up to. And Abingdon, as I think most MG car club members know, was what you might call basically equipped. And at the end of the day, this man came into uh, John Thornley's office. This was before John Thornley retired and said, well, Mr. Thornley, I think you've got a very nice, he said, I'm going to call it a cottage industry. You've got a very nice cottage industry here. He said, I think with a bit of work and a bit of help from your bosses at British Leyland, you should be able to make 25,000 cars a year. And John Thornley looked at him and smiled and said, thank you very much for that. He said, you should know that last year we built 50,000. <laughs> now, that tells you a lot about MG. Of course, the story didn't quite finish there because BL Special Tuning arrived in 1974 and we had a man who was quite controversial amongst those sort of British Leyland faithfuls, uh, a man called John Davenport. And then we had the sort of TR7V8 era. Um, we eventually had the Metro 6R4. But um, before we get to that moment when they left Abingdon, was that a kind of last gasp, really, for that team? Yes and no. In other words, you, you, you pinpointed the, the date of 1974, which is quite right. In other words, having been in the, in the shadows from 1970 for a while, it became clear that, that something like a new Abingdon, sounds a bit like talking about the new normal these days, a new Abingdon competitions department was needed. It was reopened. Bill Price was involved and uh, Bill still has fond memories of everything that happened. And for once, British Leyland said to uh, all their specialists, what's the, what's the most likely car to win? Again, they were into the winning. And I'm sorry to say, it wasn't an MG by then. It was the Triumph, the TR7 V8. And in due course, 
um, the new dep- the new old department at Abingdon, if you like, made it work. I mean, they they started building TR7s in rally cars in 1975. By 1980. It was a formidably quick car. It was winning rallies. It was winning tarmac rallies in particular. Um, and it was an incredibly quick car. But let's never forget that it was still built by the same core of MG enthusiasts, people who've been there for years and years and years. I mean, I remember one of the best-known names, in, or two of the best-known names in motorsport, um, Den Green, who had been um, foreman mechanic uh, under the MGBs and the Mini Coopers, he was still there. Brian, Brian Moylan, one of the top mechanics, and several more. And incidentally, whenever you see an MG car club event to which uh, people like the old survivors can turn up, they always turn up all right again. But they might have had to prepare cars which were carrying a <clears throat> different badge from the MG ones, but they still built the cars beautifully. And uh, in that respect, Abingdon certainly got its got its mojo back. Mm, definitely, and made people like Tony Pond absolute superstars. Uh, oh, as I said, and the cars were formidable, and you know they, they could still have been improved. But then we come to the British Leyland policies again. Indeed, and that was the moment at which Abingdon was to make competition cars no more. MG had been closed. And the, what was left of the department then relocated to Cowley at this point, didn't it? Indeed. The closure of MG at Abingdon was, was forecast a year in advance. The closure announcement came in 79. The last MGB was built, I believe, in October 1980. And uh, within weeks of that, the sale notices had gone up. And within months of that, of course, the wholesale demolition of the Abingdon site began. And uh, uh, I don't know how long it is since you've been there recently, uh, Wayne, but there, there is now only one block of original factory buildings left. The rest has all gone over either to modern, what I shall call, executive housing or to um, small light industry units uh, of an entirely different sort. The only good news there, by the way, is that the executive housing, which is across the road from the old competitions department, it carries... It carries uh, the names of roads, one, one road is called Thornley Avenue, by the way. So there are some people at Abingdon in the local authority who still thought that MG was worth remembering. But yeah, that was it. That w- uh, no sooner had the, the shutters come down, if you like, than, than the bulldozers moved in. And that's when Abingdon as a, as a business, not as a business, Abingdon as a physical entity disappeared. Although I think, I think most people would agree the enthusiasm has never died. Well, of course, from there, then on, John Davenport went to work with people like Williams on the Metro 6R4 project, which we've discussed at great length in previous podcasts for the MG Car Club, a legendary vehicle in its own right. Um, but looking back over that entire history that we've covered there, Graham, with a bit more, perhaps, budget and perhaps a little bit more determination for it to succeed from those in management... Do you think the Abingdon Works and their activities there could have saved the British motor industry? They could have made a great difference to its reputation in the wide world. I think I'll go back one step and say if, if somehow British Leyland had been more profitable and if British Leyland somehow had been persuaded to make one homologation special if you like, to compete with the, the escorts and things like it. And don't forget there were cars from Europe as well, Alpine, Renaults and things, all of which were homologation specials built, designed, 
specifically for motorsport and not necessarily profitable. If MG had been allowed to progress the ideas they had, they would have made a big difference. And I think the problem was quite literally financial in the early 70s. I think the world knows that the industrial atmosphere, the industrial workforce atmosphere within British Leyland was not good at all. If only it had been better, and if only there had been money available to develop special cars, they could have been continually successful for 10, 15 years ahead. Well, it's a fantastic story that gave rise to some amazing British sporting cars, and you and I always enjoy telling the story, um, and uh, we should have been doing it in an arena at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon this year. Sadly, uh, COVID and all of the crisis has put paid to that for this year. Hopefully, we'll get together and do it next year, but it's a great story to share with those who might be new to the idea that the British motor industry at the time was so successful in motorsport, isn't it? MG was one of those, what well, I'm sorry to say was, because it's not British anymore, MG was one of those brands that almost everyone could relate to, almost everyone bought one or two or three over the years. Wonderful brand of car and a, a wonderful sporting heritage that we've tried to list in, in, this, uh, in this chat. Absolutely. Graham Robson, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. The MG Car Club Podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. Well, Adam, I hope you've enjoyed the insight there that Graham's been able to give us into the full story across two parts uh, behind the Abingdon Works Department and fascinating to just relive some of those memories of his and some of the stories of that fantastic part of mg history and some of the legendary vehicles that it gave rise to yeah i mean people like graham i'm i'm genuinely jealous of because to live through that period when you had the Abingdon Works creating those Heelys, those Minis, because um, I've got a big soft spot for the Mini as well. But to see, you know, to have been around at that time and to have been involved in it and been so close. I mean, like, hearing last week's podcast um, when he was talking about going for dinner with the guys from Ford and the guys from, from Abingdon, you know, amazing. And uh, we're very, very lucky and very grateful to Graham for giving us, uh, giving us his time. Lots more to discover, really, uh, and lots more people to talk to on this podcast about various aspects of the history of MG and how it fits into the British motor industry as well. And we'll bring you all those here on the MG Car Club podcast. Also, we must just uh, let you know about some amazing merchandise that you've got to have. It is our 90th anniversary polo shirts and they are selling out. And the reason we're telling you about this is because there's not too many left now and we don't want you, our podcast listeners, to miss out. These are the specially produced polo shirts with the 90th anniversary logo upon them. They are stylish. There's some rubbish quality polos out there, but not the MG Car Club ones. These are proper good stuff, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're, the embroidery is really good quality. They wash well. They last well. Um, I'm wearing a 90th anniversary one at the moment. Um, I know you can't see me because podcasts are an audio medium, not a video medium. Um, but um, no, they are really good and they, they fit well. They're really comfortable. Um, yeah, I mean, I wear um, our polo shirts every day for work um, and they, they put up with that. So yeah, they are they're really good quality and you don't want to miss out. These are going to be collector's items in the future because once they're gone, they're gone. 
gone you're not making any more after this year and um, it's a really nice logo actually it's just if you've got one of the grill badges by the way also available on the shop it's that logo it's the logo you can see in the top corner of the website as well it's that lovely special edition 90th anniversary logo and it's on the polo shirts and the good news is we've got the men's fit ones for us blokes and because the ladies don't like wearing men's polos because they don't fit properly we've got ladies fit ones as well so there's a polo shirt for everyone and they're just 25 quid so we just wanted to tell you about them because we don't want you to miss out I know it's been difficult buying merchandise from the MG Car Club because we haven't been having our, our normal shows and you haven't been able to meet in a face-to-face and buy it over the counter, as it were. But they are all available online via shop.mgcc.co.uk. We don't want you to miss out just because we're not having shows because of COVID. So that's why we're telling you about them. Shop.mgcc.co.uk. Search for polo shirts or you can find them under clothing there and they are the 90th anniversary special edition. And that just about is all we have time for on this week's MG Car Club podcast. Many thanks to Graham Robson for that amazing story and journey through the history of the works department at Abingdon. Cheerio from me. And from me. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk. Thank you.